0: Have a seat, everyone. Well, the band seems to be particularly on today, leading us all into the presence of God. I think I talked to Jamie there, the guitarist, you know, is just did the lick there. And uh, I said, so you got any lead work to do to go today? And he goes, uh, well, I just found out I had lead work to do, like, right before service. And, and so he just, like, just, you know, just made that up. So anyway, and cool opening song. And I'm just going to go over do this here for a while. So, like, Luke on that Longview ruins footage, you know. Very cool, nice video. Do you guys like that stuff? I love the local art. That's always kind of cool, you know? So if you guys are into that sort of thing, then bring it to us and we'll, you know, see what we can do with it. Well, we are in the midst, the middle of a five Sunday month here in July, and we are working our way through studying the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, it's what's called in the Bible, it's one of the five books of wisdom along with Proverbs and Psalms and so forth. And so Ecclesiastes is probably, uh, scholars would say it's probably the peak. It's the pinnacle of probably what's the most difficult stuff to understand about ancient wisdom. And uh, I think you'll probably agree with me as we sort of plow through a few of the text here. So today... We're talking about what I think is really the core message of Ecclesiastes, but it doesn't appear to be the core message. It's talking about work and labor. And because it's talking about work and labor, it's really talking about contentment in life. So I'll probably, I'm just going to say, probably fail to do it justice, but. Uh, This is why I've assigned you homework like keep reading Ecclesiastes and from here on out just finish the rest of the book and keep reading it as much as you can over and over because it takes sort of an immersive learning of rereading it to get it. But you'll see that contentment really becomes the primary theme of wisdom. So let's dive into it here as we talk about work. Um, And if we had more time or if I taught a class on it I'd love to start with like a theology of work going back to Genesis and the garden and all that. But we're going to go really to the spirituality or really just the wisdom of work. So here we go. We're going to start. I'm going to use blocks, cardboard boxes to outline things for you just to keep it a bit clear. It builds. So um, we're going to start with we have in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which is where we're going. So if you have your Bible or if you brought it up on an app, we'll put it up on the screen too. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we start with workers. And there are, in Ecclesiastes, there are two kinds of workers. And the first works and works and works and works and and slaves and slaves and slaves. And they end up poor anyway. They work and work and end up poor. They are then frustrated. And so here we go, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. Solomon writes... This is also a grievous ill. Just as they, the workers, just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have for their toiling for the wind? Besides, all their days they eat in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and resentment. So, by the way, if you pick up on Solomon's style here, he usually says something re- just like this really depressing, you know. And then. He does this sort of rabbi thing. He kind of goes, but it might get better. It might not. And you're like, that's your good answer? Yeah. So we have not just workers. We have poor workers. Oh, and we don't just have poor workers. We have... There it is. Frustrated poor workers. Yay, we're off to a good start. So frustrated poor workers, and they work and work, and they end up frustrated. So here comes the turn, Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, right? This is what I've seen to be good. So this this is the happy moment. It's fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun in the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their hearts. So what you have then is you're seeing Solomon begin to say like, you know what really makes it work if you're poor, if you're frustrated? What makes it work is you actually being staying busy is what he's saying. And he doesn't mean like frantically crazy busy. He means the fact that you would pay attention to the fact that the day is going, that you're working, that you're laboring, that you're creating. He doesn't just mean slaving away. I know some of us, you know, have to really slave away, but that you would actually pay attention to the beauty of what you're doing. And it's a gift, he says, to pay attention. And he would say, it doesn't matter if you're a poor worker or you're a rich worker, you can both end up frustrated if you don't have the right perspective. So, we add to this poor workers, if I get this right, yeah, I did. We add then rich workers and poor workers, and they can both end up frustrated if they approach life wrong. If they approach it right, they learn to trust and enjoy and realize life is a gift That's what he's getting at. So no matter which one you are, you can end up rich or poor. Two portraits, one poor, one rich, and both will ask in their frustration, what's it all for? It's all just a striving after the wind. It's all a vanity, which we went over the first week in July. You know, what does vanity mean? It means it all gets pushed to the curb is what it means in the end. And, and in the first picture, the picture of this hardworking man or woman, Solomon says, I realize that the best a poor soul can do is to just cherish the simple things in life, food and drink and the simple satisfaction of hard work and an honest day's wage. He, Solomon says, the poor hardworking man's simple impoverished lifestyle is actually a source of great peace and contentment. Now, what, what I think is actually going on here dynamically I know it says rich workers and poor workers, and they're frustrated. But I know, because I'm one of you, that what really happens is we say, I hear what you're saying, Pastor. I concede on the scripture about that rich workers are actually frustrated. But can I test that? Because you give me a pile of money. I think I'm gonna be pretty well off. I think I'm not gonna be so frustrated if you just give me enough stuff, right? That's the suburban American dream and all the deal. It's not a bad, necessary thing, except for the fact that it replaces God, (laughs) you know, and can lead to uh, not just frustration, but a meaninglessness, to a vanity. But I can stand here and preach this till I'm blue in the face and to myself as well, and we will end up saying, let me try it myself. Let me see if I can be both rich and content. Because I know content rich people and I think I can be one of them. And besides, I'm all Jesus-fied and I got church and everything. I can do that. We're kind of missing the point because Solomon's actually saying it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. The, the issue is, is, are you content with little or with a lot? And then the American myth jumps in and says, I can be content with a lot. Yes, I can. So I've lost you at this point because I think that's so ingrained into our psyche as a, as a world, as a people, not just America, that it's hard to get this wisdom down until you reach a place where you're like, what's life all about? Even though I have everything. And believe me, Solomon had everything. He knows what he's talking about here. So we do well to listen to him on this thing. I've been to a lot of Caribbean countries over the decades. Lori and I have been to them. I've been to them, some of them with you. I've been to the uh, armpit of the Western Hemisphere. I've been to Haiti, and I've been to luxurious resorts and sat on a beach drinking weird things. And, and I've, I've held babies that would die, and I've you know, eaten spectacular meals at sunset. I've been to rich places and I've been to poor places. And you know what? If you go around the Caribbean, no matter if you're in Haiti or Honduras or Guatemala or the BVI or the USVI, wherever you tend to go, you'll hear two words over and over and over from the nationals, from the indigenous people. And do you know what those two words are? Yes, you do. No problem. Three words. No problem man or mon, depending on what country you're in. No problem, huh? Which is their sort of way of saying, like, white rich guy, why are you so uptight? You've got everything. Somehow you had thousands of dollars or got some free trip or whatever. You're coming down here and you're sitting in my chase lounge and I'm having to work my tail off and you are upset that your food didn't come on time. No problem, man. Get over yourself. They're telling us be content, you're in paradise. But we don't do it. No problem, man. This is Solomon's words. He's simply saying, rich or poor, no problem, man. Don't be frustrated. Get over yourself. Learn that it's a gift of God. Contentment is a gift of God. Be satisfied that God has blessed you this day. One day at a time, which we'll get to here in a little bit. So let's just spend our, the rest of our little moment here in this teaching section here of the morning before we get to communion. Let's just focus on being satisfied with what God's blessed us with. So you have this frustration in life and, um, and we sort of dispute it and we're trying to tell ourselves, yes, I'm trying to listen to the Bible. I'm trying to understand that I'm supposed to be content. I'm working really hard. I know I really want a pile of money and that I'll try not to make that my idol. I get all this sort of thing. So Solomon, Solomon Solomon says, this is why we're struggling. He says we never live in the present moment. We, and this is so interesting, 3,000 years ago, they had the same exact problem that we have. People either live in the past on the woulda, shoulda, coulda, I shoulda done it right, I shoulda taken that job, I shoulda not married that guy, uh, you know what I mean, I shoulda not had 18 kids. They, they start doing all the woulda, shoulda, coulda stuff, I don't know if it's right about 18 kids, maybe you love all your 18 kids, but... Um, you know, so I'm looking at all the people with big families in the room, and they're kind of like, "Wait, what am I thinking?" So, um, like, "Hello, my kids. Um, What's your name?" So, uh, so he's saying uh, this whole thing that um, we don't live in the present moment. Uh, sociologists call this the cult of the next thing. The cult of the next thing is actually a real syndrome. We live in a cult of the next thing. Um, and in my research, I've actually studied this stuff because I studied spirituality. And it's amazing how much we don't live in the present moment and we live for the next thing. We are relentless. It's actually an addiction. It's a compulsion about wanting the next thing. We look for the next weekend. We ne- look for the next day. We look for the next purchase, which is a really intriguing one about purchasing something and then bringing it home. And then it, it um, has a degradation. It declines. And then we need to purchase something else, which is a really weirdo thing. Thing that affluent countries have? We are looking for the next thing, the next relationship, the next job, the next exciting moment, the next fun thing. We raise our children. I remember years ago, uh, Dr. Belt here said uh, that he was studying a book and in his education doctorate, and he said this. He said he read a book that said inner city kids are actually better at functioning in life than wealthy suburban kids. You know why? Because inner city kids learn how to catch the bus. They, need to go, they learn how to go to the shop to buy food, you know, burritos or whatever else they get. They learn how to go to the library. They learn how to entertain themselves because nobody's parenting them. They learn how life works, which actually, according to scholars, is wisdom. You know what suburban kids say? What's next? What do I have to be at next? Is it dance time? Do I have to go to horseback riding now? Is it football practice time? They just simply say, what's next? They actually don't know how to function like, dude, catch a bus and go get something to eat. They'd be like, aren't you going to drive me? You know what I mean? So it's an interesting thing that inner city kids can sort of have some sort of contentment or actually more wise or mature or function higher than suburban kids whose lives are so tightly scheduled. How's that for interesting research? We find this even around the church. I just need one more volunteer. If people would just show up to my thingio, if we could just paint the lobby, you know, some non-orange color. You know, it's a thing around here, right? I don't know what's wrong with orange, but I love orange. Uh, Yeah, Okay, I'm over the orange thing. So, uh, like, people are going to start throwing stones at me, you know, because orange? Are you an orange person? So, yeah, we want to paint the lobby. So we just go on and on about what's the next thing around church? I can't wait till that guy stops and get that Garrett guy back. Oh, I can't wait for Garrett to stop so we can get the Marta person up there. You know, it just kind of goes like that, right? The next thing. We live not in the present moment. Do I need to mention not living in the present moment indicative of the fact that you actually are craving right at this very moment the next iPhone? Aren't you? You should be. So um, that's what it's all about. I mean, not the next iOS, because you don't want that, because it always tears up your phone and, you know, runs the battery. But nonetheless, still you need something new. Something new. cult to the next thing. And we live in either, as Solomon says, we either live in the past or we live in the future and never in the present moment. We live in I sh- woulda, shoulda, coulda, and then we live in ought to. What if I'm stuck? We end up sounding like Yoda, Right? Just to kind of bring in our real sacred text at Lakeland, Star Wars. Um, All his life, Yoda says, he has looked away, never his mind on where he was. Yoda didn't speak right. He doesn't live in the present. And Luke Skywalker's untrainable because of that. It's just a movie. The more I study Ecclesiastes, the more I realize how thoroughly Jesus was, understood wisdom. Here he is, 30, 33 years old, young, must have been a master at Scripture. You know that most ancient people actually had the Bible memorized and some could not read? They, you know, they didn't have to quote movie lines at each other. They just quoted Scripture all day long. Jesus surely, obviously, knew the Torah, he probably had the Psalms. And so Jesus has the wisdom of the scriptures in him. He understands this whole thing. And he he owned it. Jesus' entire ministry, you could say, was about the present moment. He says, The kingdom of heaven is here and in your midst. The kingdom of God is near, he says. The kingdom of God is near. It is right here. Now, there were four words in there are four words in Hebrew for heaven. And one of the most dominant used ones is what we would think, because we think of heaven as up, but the word in the Hebrew is like what we would think of as like ether or the atmosphere um, without being like oxygen, but like it's a spirit or a presence around you, that heaven is next to you. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, he doesn't mean near like, hey, get in your car and drive to Tonganoxie. He's meaning It's reach out and grab it. It is here in your presence. It is around you. Just step into it. And what he means is, Jesus says, it is me. I am near you. I am the presence of heaven is what he's saying. I am the presence of heaven. Jesus understood this. He says, everything is different now because of me. And then he begins to teach us over and over. Think about the Gospels, how Jesus teaches. He keeps saying, like, why are you guys so worried? I am here. God is real. It's all present. Now, these are to Jews who totally are Bible people. These are, they live in the cultic prast- practice of Israel. They're hyper-religious people. The Pharisees made them into moralists, which they all rejected mostly. But nonetheless, They knew that God, there was no question, like there was no atheist in in ancient times. People didn't say, I don't believe in God. Everyone did, right? They all got it. See, the important critical thing then becomes this word that gets used way too much, trust. You have to begin to trust trust. You and I are in trusting God training all day long. You're in it, you know, thick right now at church. How to trust God is what we do in discipleship. That's what we're working on. That's why you're here. Even if you didn't know why you came this morning, you just out of habit, good habit actually. You came here to learn like, I just need to hear something to help me trust God, that God is more real and present. Yeah, I mean, in general, I'm kind of generalizing there. You're saying, I don't know if I'm in the right job. I don't know if I'm in the right relationship. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I'm going to get out of debt. And all of those are questions of trust. Can I trust God? Struggles like losing a job, that's a defining moment for you. Finding the right job or being underemployed, that's a defining moment. These are are moments where when you enter into this crunch and this crisis, this is when you begin to learn to trust. Here's the way it works. You don't trust. You don't learn to trust. You don't learn to trust by studying trust. You know what you study? You study crisis and trouble. Then you learn to trust. The crisis and the trouble come, and out of the bad time, the scary time, that's where trust is developed. It's really, really hard to just bootstrap, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps in trusting God. Instead, what actually happens is, like we talked about last week when we talked about crisis, which is here in Ecclesiastes, when you encounter terrible times, sickness and, you know, poverty and other things like that, that's when you learn to trust. I have yet to run into anyone who started their own business who's a Christian who doesn't say like, well, well, now I'm in the hands of God. You know, because I went to the bank and signed this piece of paper that says, you own me, (laughs) right? And they are like, hands up, I'm caught. I'm caught in the eyesight of God. I have no choice. I trust God. You put yourself in that situation as a small business owner, right? I have no choice but to trust trust God each and every day. So here's the counterintuitive thing then about trust. Trust in God comes at the most powerfully worst times. Another topsy-turvy idea out of Ecclesiastes. What we think is the way to do things is not actually how life works. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. It just does this all the time throughout it. So Solomon's implying like, hey, get this. Are you, are you down to your last dollar? Then consider yourself the most blessed person in the world. You're the only one who understands what's actually important. That's why he's standing there at the temple, and the old woman comes and drops her last two copper coins into the coffer. And, he, and he, Jesus jumps up and says, She, she is the only person in the whole nation that hasn't any faith in God. She just put everything, she's the one to look to. Not the rich people with their, you know, showy, you know, hundreds. There's a brilliant ethnist named John Kavanaugh, And Kavanaugh years and years ago, went to work three months, uh, went on a pilgrimage, I would call it, to work with Mother Teresa in uh, Calcutta, India, to work in the house of the dying. And John Kavanaugh uh, had an appointment with Mother Teresa to go talk with her because that's about the way you get in. And by the way, I know we all like to think of Mother Teresa as this sweet little old tiny woman who just loved everybody, and that's true. Tiny loved everyone. She was hellfire on wheels. Don't get in her way. You will get run over backwards and forwards. She got what she wanted, and she got it now. Mother Teresa is not to be toyed with. She told it like it was, and so John Cavanaugh, this ethnicist, gets to his appointment with Mother Teresa, and she asks him this. What can I do for you? And John Cavanaugh asked her to uh, pray for him. Mother Tracy, would you pray for me? She asks, what do you want me to pray for you? And he said, he wanted, he came all the way from the United States to ask this, pray that I have clarity. Pray that I have clarity. And she says firmly, I will not do that. And when asked why, she said clarity is the last thing you're clinging to and you must let go of it. I will instead of praying for clarity for you, I will pray that you have trust. Trust God. We don't need clarity, we need trust. So maybe you're Solomon's poor man or woman and who wonders why God has let you fall into this miserable pit of a life that you have with the uncertainties and bills and the debts and the lifestyle troubles and the second guessing. Or maybe you're Solomon's rich person and you have most everything you want and you wonder why life isn't rich and why you can't, you know, seem to fill your house with enough stuff, furnitures and gadgets and things. Either one, Solomon says. If you want clarity, that's not what you're going to get. Trust is where you need to be working. So consider Jesus again. We hear Jesus saying the same thing. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. I personally have chosen to make it easy on Jesus. (laughs) Don't be afraid. You are worth many more sparrows, Luke chapter 12. Ah. More than sparrows you are. You're, how many birds are you worth? That's the way uh, good old Dallas Willard put it. God rest his soul. One of my favorite authors. How many birds are you worth? A thousand? A hundred? A million? God is holding you in the palm of his hand. It is God who stands at the end of your bed way before you wake up and then you open your eyes and God says, "What are we going to do today? I'm so excited to hang out with you. We got fun stuff to do. Don't we have fun stuff to do? We're going to go look for a job. Yay! We're going to pay bills. Yay! We're going to raise kids. We're going to change diapers. This is going to be awesome." And we're like, "I'm so old." God is younger than us. God is more excited about your life than you are. God is ahead of you, going and leading you places you don't even know you're going to go to and that you don't want to go to if you knew about it. How many sparrows are you worth? God thinks you're worth infinite sparrows, enough to come as Christ and die on a cross and give us the hope of the resurrection. That's what you're worth. It's us who have bought the lie. And that's why we're not content. And that's why we don't trust. Can you give God your kids? Can you give him your career? Can you give him your broken down car? Can you give him all of this stuff? That's where it comes down to. This is the nitty gritty of the Christian life right here. The stakes are so high when it comes to trust. Everything hinges on this answer on whether or not you think you belong, belong to God. How many sparrows are you worth? How many sparrows? Rich or poor. If you're not living daily, then you'll not be in the present here and now, and you'll miss everything. So how do we take on this um, trust? What I've learned over decades of doing ministry is, uh, like I said about trust, a frontal attack does not teach us to trust. You need, and I know it sounds really weird, you need gimmicks. You need cheesy gimmicks. And as a matter of fact, if you can fool yourself, this is how we actually learn things. We need habits. Okay, for instance, you want to work out, okay? But you don't work out. Why do you not work out? Because you don't have the habit to work out. For instance, one of the tricks, this is actually coming from uh, Duhigg's book on the power of habits. For instance, if you want to work out, then the first thing you do in the morning is put on workout clothes. Even though you say, like, I don't want to work out. But the workout clothes will trigger or interrupt your morning routine to make you work out. I've observed this in my house. It's purely a um, something I've observed um, of <laughs> others in our house. So this is precisely the moment, do as I have observed and not as I do. So, but you find tricks. I remember a woman here a long time ago, and she was trying to quit smoking, and she figured out she had to stop drinking coffee in the morning because the minute she drank coffee, she smoked. So when she stopped smoking the coffee, the trigger was gone. You know what I mean? Uh, what did I say? Whatever I said wrong, fix it. Podcast, but I, I said something wrong, right, Jen? So, okay, whatever. I don't remember what it was. So here's my cheesy... T- I know you guys walked in and you got this little post-it note thing and I'm super cheap and that's why it's so thin. Uh, and it, and you're, you thought it, it was shaped like this so you could hold it really well, which why would you want to hold it this way? I don't know. It's a piece of bread. It's a piece of white bread. So uh, it's Wonder Bread. And it says on there, give us today our daily bread. Because I used to just say, I would even hand out post-it notes and say right on there, give us today our daily bread. This is your cheap gimmick. What I'd like to suggest that you do is you plaster this all over your whole life this week. Do it this afternoon, do it tomorrow morning. You stick it on the dash of your car, not right where your eyes are supposed to be. You put it over the radio, you take a picture of it because you write on here, How many birds am I worth? And then you take a picture of it and you make it the wallpaper on your phone for this week. You, you put it in the mirror while you're brushing your teeth, you put it across from the toilet. You, you do something where this is everywhere. You begin to immerse yourself with reminders. You're know, like, God, it's so cheesy. You t- ask me to put post-it notes all over my house. You open up the fridge and they'll be there on the sour milk. There it is. Milk really is kind of a weekly thing, daily thing, so it would probably be appropriate to put that on there. You can put the date of when the milk expires on this. How's that? If you don't like these, get your own post-it notes. I don't care, but it is the weird little gimmicky things that actually train us up for anything you want to do in life if you want to change a habit. A direct assault does not really work all the time. Bootstrap religion fails over and over and over, whether it's New Year's Day commitments or Lenten fasts and things like this. This is how things get done. And that's why I'm handing out little silly post-it notes to you saying, write something on there. Heaven, write anything on there, whatever you're doing and put it all over your life. This is how you'll get reminded. I keep saying this, and Ashley's on alert as my assistant to turn my phone off because it will ring at 1135, and that's when people say, like, that's when you've gone too long, which is true. But that will ring because it's a time to pray three times a day. I just took the technology and said, I'm going to leverage this as a gimmick to tell me it's time to pray. Do I pray every time? No. Do I say what they say up at Conception Abbey? You know, oh God, come to my assistance. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Yes. If I'm not in a place where I'm by the Psalter, the Psalms. Find these things. This is your training. You guys, if you're a teenager or if you're in your 20s, your life spiritually right now is about immersing yourself in Scripture. You will need it later. Right now, If you're a teenager or if you're in your 20s, your color palette is black and white. I will guarantee you that by the time you're 50, your color palette will be gray. You will live enough years to where it's not so black and white anymore. You won't know that until you have scripture in there. I told somebody in between services, they said, I really like this Ecclesiastes stuff. And it was an older gentleman. I said, when you're young, you study Proverbs. Proverbs tells you, don't be a fool. Do the right things, and things turn out right. You do the wrong things, t- things turn out wrong. You know what you get with Ecclesiastes? Meh. Sometimes you do the right thing, and it turns out bad, and sometimes you do the you know, bad thing, and it turns out good. Wicked people live a long life, and the good die young. Gray. Train for it by getting these habits into your life. This is how it works. I have a dream that someday Lakeland will be filled with incredible people who have learned the secret of living the way Jesus taught it. Daily living, daily bread, one day at a time, not gathering up and storing up, free, so that when you're older, you can say, I can leave it all behind and move to China and teach 18-year-olds English Bible, who will someday be missionaries to go around the globe. Your training right now is so that someday you will be so free that you say, "God, what are we going to do today?" Maybe someday you can be standing at the end of God's bed saying, "Hey, get up, We got That's not the way it works, but that's what you're supposed to be doing with in your life. Two portraits, two people, one rich, one poor. Both can either be frustrated, worried, riddled with anxiety. Or they can both have daily bread. And so that's why I give you this last box. Just to tell you how gimmicky I can be, wherever it went. Ah. Manitize. You're like, what? That's not a real word. No, it's not a real word. I made it up. Matter of fact, manna is not even so much of a real world, you know, real word. You know, the Exodus, right? The Israelites, the Hebrews are wandering in the desert for 40 years. And every morning they got up and there was this manna, this this cracker bread stuff. Actually, the word in Hebrew means, what is it? <laughs> it's not even a real word, even in Hebrew. It means, what is it? You know, and if you collected too much because you got kind of, you know, Like, I'm going to save some up. It rotted. Except on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and then you could collect twice as much because they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, and then it didn't rot. Go figure. Manitize your life. Just wake up each day. I mean, it'd be really cool you walk out to get your paper. Of course, nobody does that except for me because nobody else is on the paper. They're all on your phone. But, you know, you walk out there, and there's this manna junk laying in your front yard. Like, "Well, well, I guess I'll just eat it. Don't eat stuff out of your front yard. But... Manitize your life. Daily bread. You get the metaphor? This was God's gimmick for the Hebrews. He could have told them, you need to trust me. And they say, oh, yes, we all trust you. And then they make a golden calf. Well, that didn't work. Instead, what happens is, is he gives them this cheesy gimmick of this cracker bread stuff that shows up all the time. And that's how they get it done. Solomon goes on to say, chapter 6, verse 7, All human toil is for the mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. What a beautiful quote. All human toil is for the mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. And then verse 9, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and a chasing after the wind. You hear what he's saying? You study this? Satisfaction is found in eating what is right in front of you enjoy it the next bite of costco manicotti is spectacular it's just fine it's the best bite ever if you can do that then you get solomon the other option is just chasing your tail so which portrait are you going to be on the night when jesus was betrayed he took a loaf of bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body. That's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This was Jesus' gimmick, using bread and a, a cup of wine. And we modernists sit around and say, like, That's, what's that? That's nothing. But it worked. Is that my phone? I don't have a phone. It's, it's from the band. It's always the band. Well, let's rise and talk loudly over the phone. And let us pray. Everyone, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let's keep the feast, hallelujah. the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. If you choose to stay in your seat, that's fine, but come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the chalice, consume it, and return to your seat in prayer. Come whenever you're ready. And now, O Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food and you're about to send us out into our week as light and salt into a dark and tasteless world where we, where we, Lord, as you've commissioned us to be the hands and the feet and the eyes and the words and the ears of you. May we do so with daily bread, learning to trust you in the name of Jesus. And we all said, Amen. We'll speak to them. All right, let's end with the blessing. This is really to each other. You remember, now, a benediction is not a prayer. You don't need to close your eyes or bow your head. It's actually to each other. It's a good word to each other. And typically, you know, for centuries, it was the priest that put the good word on each other. But we made it communal. Using this Celtic one. So I'm just telling you. So typically, people like open up their hands, right? And like, I'm receiving something. You can do that if you want to. All right, all together, everybody. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.